Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me and the show on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. In this episode of From the Crow's Nest, we return for part two of my conversation with the distinguished team from Draper on microelectronic supply chain. Part one of our conversation was released on January 18th. We focused a lot on some of the big picture concepts and important policy developments. And in this episode, we look more closely at technology innovation from a technical perspective. I'm again joined by Jen Santos, Chief Corporate Strategic Initiatives Office at Draper, Laboratory Fellow Jeremy Freifeld, and Program Manager David Hegestrom. You can learn more about them by visiting our show notes, and you can learn more about Draper, an independent nonprofit engineering innovation company at draper.com. Without further delay, let's return to my conversation with Jen, Jeremy, and David from Draper. In this episode, we want to dive more into the solution. What's from a technology perspective, what's going on today? Where are we going in the evolution uh, that that is taking place here? Um, and so I wanted to start off, and maybe David might be uh, the, the right person to start off with. But uh, one, for our listeners, uh, you know, this is obviously a very complex uh, issue. Could we kind of lay, provide a lay of the land of who are the major players and kind of where technology is right now in terms of what the capacities of these players are producing? Well, thanks, Ken. Uh, Let me start to answer the question um, a little bit tangentially. I think think if you can visualize uh, an electronics board, a circuit board, uh, the green widget that's in just about anything in your pocket these days, you can think of it in terms of four uh, kinds of work that goes in that goes into that. One is a very integrated set of process steps, usually thousands of process steps, manufacturing steps, that goes into the silicon itself. Uh, and most of the state-of-the-art silicon, the, the computer chips uh, that we that we revolve our lives around, come from come from offshore nowadays. But that kind of manufacturing is very distinct. It's very highly integrated. It's very expensive. And then what happens with that, that wafer, that silicon wafer, it gets cut up, uh, sometimes with a laser, sometimes with a diamond saw. It gets cut up into individual chips. And those individual chips get assembled in some combination to make a what I would call a module. That's called packaging. And you'll hear a lot about heterogeneous integration or, or uh, advanced packaging. That means taking those individual silicon chips and assembling them. Now, there's a couple things that go into that as well, besides just assembly machines. The substrate uh, that they're all put together on is in itself a complex, integrated uh, product. 
and the substrate and then the circuit board that ultimately brings the system together, those are both very integrated processes. The United States used to dominate those fields, and we've lost about 80% of the market share, uh, probably more, uh, to Asian manufacturers. And then the final assembly of the individual modules onto the, onto the ultimate host uh, circuit board is kind of an assembly step. I think in both of those assembly areas, um, we ha are in pretty good standing, or at least we have the potential to be very competitive through, I would say, modest types of investment in pieces of machinery, in plants, but the two very integrated processes, the silicon manufacturer and the circuit board and substrate manufacturer, we have lost a great deal of, of leadership in those, and it's hard to get back. It's a substantial investment to get those back. Um, and I think those are areas that, that need particular focus as we go forward. And as far as the, the silicon itself, I mean, there's very few enterprises that can produce the state-of-the-art and when I say state-of-the-art, I'm talking, you know, anything, I guess, below five, seven nanometer uh, these days. So there's really only two. There's TSMC, which is in Taiwan, and there's uh, Samsung in South Korea. Intel is currently trying to play there uh, onshore um, uh, or offshore in Ireland and Israel, but uh, they're not quite there yet. They don't have the same um, advanced technology that the other companies do. Um, and so those that, you know, other, other than that, domestically, we also have Global Foundries, um, which as of last year is now a publicly traded company. Um, most of their manufacturing facilities are in upstate New York. They're, those manufacturing facilities were actually built by the government. Um, uh, and Global Foundries has a long history back to um, AMD and, and other things, but they're, they're still at around the you know, the 12 nanometer type node at the, at the lowest. So they're several generations behind state of the art. I would say Intel right now is, you know, two to three generations behind. And Global Foundries is even more like, you know, five or four or five generations behind state of the art offshore manufacturing. So when we talk about the supply chain, um, there are a number of companies globally, and they eat, uh, and a few of them do certain things really well, and then others do other things really well. And you mentioned the difference between you know, uh, you know, component manufacturing and assembly and so forth. Um, and if you're trying to strengthen your supply chain, you can't do it in a vacuum. So if you're trying to do something, obviously you, you have competitors globally that are trying to also keep their 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 share of the market. Um, so from you know where we're at today, what would you say U.S. does the best at in terms of our position in the market? So the two things the U.S. is really great at uh, still today, one is design and electronic design automation tools, which are the software that we use to, to do the large chip designs. So uh, I, I don't remember the exact statistics, but approximately 80% of electronic design is still done onshore. And that's largely to do to the fact that we have 90% of the electronic design automation market. So the U.S. is really one of the only countries that can integrate one of these 30 billion transistor chips into a cohesive component um, from a design perspective. And then second is industrial tooling. Um, we share a very strong industrial tooling um, uh, uh, capability with Japan and the, and the Netherlands. So what is industrial tooling? Um, so 
There's end item manufacturers, like I mentioned, TSMC and, and Samsung. They produce the silicon chips. But the machines which they use to produce them are not sourced locally to South Korea or Taiwan at all. They have very little industrial tooling capability. So the tooling that they use is purchased from the U.S., Japan, and the Netherlands. Uh, and so we're very strong in that market still. So let me just step back just for a second. When you think of supply chain, right, you often think of someone that builds a car and then it's got all the suppliers or builds a truck and builds all the suppliers. When you think of a microelectronic, it is from design through multiple steps till you have a product. So if you think of that as the supply chain, I think that will, if you okay. can visualize what I mean by that, right? So, and I don't have that. We have a really great slide that describes the steps and actually to the end product. Um, but you think of each one of those steps has industry partners that design, that do those phases of creation. So the design side of it, Draper designs there. I mean, you guys can talk about all the different companies that design are exquisite designers of, um, these chips, but there's a whole bunch of them. Right. And so now you have a strong industrial base. It's not just a single supplier that does design. And then you go to the next step and you look at the creator or the industry partners. When you get to the middle part of it, which is the foundries and the manufacturing, Jeremy, you want to talk about that? Yeah, so now you can see how it maps. That's where you're constrained to those couple of manufacturers today uh, at the state of the art nodes. So, you know, the U.S. has a very good capability for design. A lot of designers, NVIDIA, AMD, most of those chips are designed in the U.S. And then to be to be manufactured, they're sent over to foreign companies for manufacturing. Uh, packaging, they're sent over to even different com com countries like Singapore and Malaysia for advanced packaging. Although, you know, Taiwan and South Korea are investing in that area as well. And then they're sent... Um, primarily to China for circuit board assembly, and then they come back to the U.S. for integration uh, or, or sales, really. So so that's about where we stand right now from a state-of-the-art supply chain. So, so, so is, is the manufacturing creating a, a, a bottleneck in the, in the uh, supply chain process? Yes, and as you think of it as a line, right, literally each step, phase one, two, three, four, five, 10, 12, there's 12 that we have, um, each one of those, there's, you know, 50 companies in the first phase, two companies in the second state. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But when you get to manufacturing, that's why the CHIPS Act is important because the CHIPS Act is focused on manufacturing. So the middle part, it's not on the design. So the design houses, um, although are important, we got to keep an eye that they don't go offshore um, because there's no capital investment into them, right? right. And so this investment from the, the, the government into the industrial base to um, shore up some of those vulnerabilities is really focused towards the middle part of the, the development phase. Yeah, and that is the bottleneck, and that's where we have the problem because having two, even three companies being able to produce the entire world's state-of-the-art chips uh, is obviously an issue. We saw that during COVID. Um, you know, it's still hard to buy new cars nowadays because uh, although they, they don't use state-of-the-art chips, but it's still hard to buy new cars nowadays because there's uh, a limiter for chip supply, both at state-of-the-art nodes and at the state-of-the-practice nodes. And that limiter, for example, um, it gets sold. It get you know, uh, back to the kind of the spectrum thing, it gets sold. So, for example, IBM, or sorry, IBM, I don't know why I said that, Apple has bought the next three years production from TSMC at a certain node. So even if somebody else wanted to produce chips at that node, they could not because Apple has already consumed the entire capability there. 
Yeah, and and I think it might be good for us to define what is legacy, present, and state of the art, the three different sectors. Sure. Sure. Uh, well, right now, um, I would say state of the art. Th- this is obviously evolving. It used to be, it used to be less than ten nanometers. Now, I would say it's about seven nanometers or under for state of the art. None of which is really produced uh, onshore. Although you know, Intel will debate a little bit about seven nanometers itself, but um, none of which is produced offshore. Then there's uh, kind of state of the practice, which is that twelve nanometer node still in very high volume production. Um, say 22 to, to 10, state of the practice, where that exists in several different um, uh, worldwide locations. Uh, and, you know, the plants are still running at capacity. And then there's legacy nodes, uh, which for logic, you know, for like computer chips is probably larger than 28 or so. Although I, I do want to point out, and this is part of the issue with my electronics, is the memories themselves, uh, those are usually at legacy, like, type node sizes, which, you know, 45 nanometer, 28 nanometer for flash. So those uh, are kind of like the legacy products, which are typically into the kind of the the more integrated products like cars. Um, they would typically choose state of the practice or legacy. They wouldn't really be at state of the art. State of the art is like laptops, cell phones, um, graphic cards, gaming consoles type things. And most of legacy chips are in national security issues, right? And so now you can start to see, right, if you're building a, a plane, a ship, a submarine, you're probably using legacy microelectronics, mm-hmm. which gets back to a supply chain issue with not having suppliers available to continue to still build legacy microelectronics. The state of the art, which is the other extreme, which is the most sophisticated as well as faster, um, are typically in more commercial end items. But we see that changing over the next, uh, you know, one to two decades. That's very important that we start, you know, integrating state-of-the-art components into weapon systems at a much faster rate. I have a little anecdote. Uh, I'll go off here. And then, so DARPA had a program called Alpha Dogfight. I don't know if you've heard of this or saw saw this, but they basically pit uh, AI pilots against human pilots um, in the same aircraft. And, you know, this is an ongoing program. It's also DARPA ACE, ACE program. But in the, in the first round of, of the battle scenarios, humans lost every round. And it wasn't due to, like, the AI fancy maneuvering or anything like that. The AI pilots flew straight at the human pilots and just locked on and, and shot them down before the human pilots could do anything. In the end, after, like, five battles, the human pilot started pulling up and doing all kinds of crazy maneuvers, but the AI pilot didn't really do much, just kind of, continued to point his nose at him, acquired the target, and shot it. And what's going to happen pretty soon, especially with the autonomous things, autonomous vehicles, whether they're underwater, whether they're land-based, whether they're air-based, space-based, what's going to happen pretty soon, and we see this in Ukraine today, is that you're going to have two drones flying at each other to deliver weapons. And the drone with the more powerful processor is going to win. There's not going to be any luck. There's not going to be any skill. It's whoever has the more dense amount of gates operating at the higher clock frequency We'll acquire the target and shoot it down first. So there's, an, there's an, that's it. And so if we don't have access to state of the art, but our adversaries do, we lose. There's no, there's no fancy math to it. It's just yeah. we lose. And, and, and that that's a great point. What do we have in place today that points that we're in the right going in the right direction on this? I mean, right now, you know, a good bulk of our weapon systems have humans in the loop. Like our 
our most advanced drones like Predators have humans on the ground with Xbox controllers uh, doing a lot of the target acquisition and ordnance deployment, right? There are always humans in the kill chain currently. Um, but you see that uh, very slowly eroding to where there's more autonomy in the kill chain. And I think that that's where the danger becomes, that we're really, really going to lose out. And even if we don't do it, even if we don't automate our kill chain, our adversaries will. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the computer will be faster than the human every time. Yeah, and I'll say this a little bit differently. All right. Um, so from an acquisition perspective, the government buys things from industry, right? Plain and simple. They need a plane, a, tr- a ship, or a sub, right? I'll just keep using those. Um, they go ask industry, can you go build me a plane, a ship, or a sub? and put whatever technology is in it. Now, you probably are very aware that a lot of our weapon systems are old, right? And so the old weapon systems, to go put in a state-of-the-art microelectronic chip mm-hmm. into an old weapon system means they have to do a spiral development, and it's many, many years away, right? And, and is it even a requirement? Do the requirers that build the plane, the ship, or the sub say, I need the latest state-of-the-art microelectronic in my my weapon systems. No, because they don't buy microelectronics, they buy weapon systems. And so part of the change in this conversation, and this kind of goes back to the last conversation we just had, is educating our industry, executive, legislative branch on the value and importance of this so that they they make their better decision makers or driving where the technology is going. Because it's much easier to just stay with the micro, the processor that you have in your weapon system. It's much easier. And then we'll put on a new EW capability, or put on a new radar, we'll put on a new engine, but we're not going to go change out the guts, the brains that drive that, that mm-hmm. speed. Um, and so you, as you design new capabilities, if you design it and say, I need state-of-the-art, which some weapon systems are absolutely going to, but you have this whole history of, you know... You know, we launch and we leave. We we build a submarine. It you know, you five years later do modernization to it. So, Go ahead, Jeremy. So a good a good analogy for this, what we're talking about, and I don't remember the current name, is the phalanx capability that we deploy on ships. Right? They switch them on. Those are totally autonomous. If something's flying or or cruising towards them, they can take it out. But the you know maybe a little bit, but the bullet technology has not improved that much. But what the Navy keeps doing is upgrading the internal guts of the phalanx has a lot less, um, you know, sensor dead zones and a lot faster acquisition and, and time on target. And I think that that's the way that warfighting is just going to happen in general uh, in the, in the, as the 21st century gets rolling. So if we don't keep pace, we're going to be left behind. Or you so, even look at that with critical infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? Critical infrastructure in this country is sitting on old legacy nodes, right? It's not at the state of the art. And so... Similar, you know, bringing together all the powers of the executive branch to say, all right, we're going to go together and we're going to grow together and drive drive those capabilities, encouraging industry to invest, right? So if TSMC and Samsung are the two leaders, as Jeremy said, we want to have two or three in the United States as well. You're going to have to have driving that capability to that same level. So industry will invest and then come to the table. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. 
Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So, so in, in our last episode, we talked a lot about, you know, the aggregation of demand. And, you know, we're talking about the, you know, the bottle here today, the, the bottleneck in, in manufacturing. And, you, and, of course, then you have the, 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 the legacy to more advanced technology. The, the, there's a lot to address, but I'm trying to get what I want to get talk about a little bit, I guess, is just the, the issue of capacity. How, how, you know, whenever you can talk about, uh, build, you know, new, chips for new advanced weapon systems or, or uh, evolution of capability. But how do you, uh, how, ca how can you affect the capacity or the, 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 the sheer number of what you need to buy to convince industry that, yeah, this is where we need to be going? I mean, or is, is that not, how, how does that play into this? Because it seems like such a, if you're trying to move from legacy to advanced, you're only talking relatively a small piece of the, the market. 
so so again, I'll, I'll kind of go back to what I said about four areas of, of electronics manufacturing. Because when you're talking about capacity, you're talking about capacity to manufacture these things, right? So you have to build the silicon, and that's very expensive. The way, the way state-of-the-art silicon is made today, it's on a very high-volume basis. You need about $10 billion to, st to set up a factory. And then it 30. has to operate, and, 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 <laughs> or more, and it has to operate, uh, you know, nearly twenty four seven to recoup the to get a return on investment. Mm -hmm. So that's 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 a problem area. The other three uh, that I mentioned, the sort of the assembly of those chips into a package, the building of the circuit boards, and the final assembly of circuit boards, they actually scale very nicely. You can put a plant in place for any one of those operations uh, for much, much orders of magnitude less money, and it can be right-sized for the kind of demand we see from, from the DOD or from, from, from the government. So I think there's ways to go after those three, um, although it still, needs, it still needs attention, but uh, it's not healthy today. Um, but I think there's ways to go after those three and the silicon is is a challenge so can you talk a little bit about that because i'm not i i this is you well you've reached the limit of my knowledge a, a while ago but i mean i talk a little bit about what goes into this the, the production of silicon oh certainly so um there's a lot of processes but you can think of them as kind of like layers or steps so you start with a plain silicon wafer and then you either add or subtract material to it you dope it so you put other things besides silicon within the the silicon itself, in order to change its electrical properties. So, um, what 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 types of uh, substance would you be doing using for that? Oh, for doping. I mean, usually, like you can think of like noble gas type thing, like boron. Um, you know, we you know we do uh, fluoride, boron, but we also in the really state of the art advanced nodes, we start doping with three five type materials, which are um, gallium arsenide, um, gallium nitride silicon carbide, there's a lot of different materials. So it's a very, very complex um, standpoint. I, 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 I say this to my colleagues a lot, but it is the most complicated human endeavor um, yet realized. So it is the most complex uh, uh, engineering feat that humans have been able to do is to produce these state-of-the-art microelectronics. And the production of them is in the highest, tightest controlled environment known to man. So the foundries themselves, one of the reasons they're so expensive, not only because of the tooling that we put into them, but also the environment they're manufactured is the most tightly controlled environment that mankind has yet created. So from a just a pure engineering perspective, it is, it is the pinnacle of human engineering to date. Um, we can talk about moon landings, which I'm a very big fan of, Draper. Uh, we helped, uh, not me, but my predecessors helped develop the Apollo guidance computer and... and, and um, that was huge of the day, but today the moon landing type engineering is happening in the silicon foundries themselves. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that is the sophistication of this, mm -hmm. right? It's not ju just the supply chain and the industry partners that do it. It's those investments into those industry partners to be able to maintain those qualification standards mm -hmm. um, to be able to produce. So, so you mentioned uh, gallium arsenide and gallium nitride and use of production of the silicon so so nowadays the what we think of as a transistor which is the 
the base building block for complementary metal oxide semiconductor, CMOS. Um, it used to be just all silicon with some um, different noble uh, implantation to change the transconductance of the of the silicon itself. But nowadays, there's so many. There's so like Dave David said before. There's thousands of steps, and each of those steps is adding or subtracting something to that silicon. Um, and a lot of that is like new material technology, um, uh, and you know different things. Like we we still think of copper, you know, especially in the defense industrial base, as kind of a gold standard for um, con, you know uh, conducting for passing signals. But at the very um, uh, uh, deep submicron state-of-the-art foundries, they're like replacing copper with you know different like cobalt and zirconium and stuff like that at this point. So it's very advanced uh, engineering and material science stuff that goes into the you know all of a, a lot of the people that get physics degree that used to go into like particle physics and things like that um, are now really working on kind of the microelectronic fabrication problems. You know, we've had this uh, conversations in the past at AOC about you know, the resource availability, you know, uh, mining of rare earth elements and so forth, uh, and the availability of the materials that go into this, um, and the the limited supply that we have there to even start this whole thousands of step process. You know, what is the next? Is, is there a next step where we're not as resource constrained in the uh, materials that we're using? So there's a published roadmap, um, but I don't think it really addresses kind of the raw material supply issue. I mean, the public roadmap is really um, focused on uh, continuing to scale the transistor to allow higher transistor density for state-of-the-art applications. But I'm going to flip that on you and say a, an issue is that the manufacturing today, even even at TSMC's perspective, you know, the question is, is it economically sustainable? Um, and that's the real question. So at the seven nanometer node, we did a calculation. Eighty percent of the cost at the seven nanometer, which is kind of one or two generations ago in the iPhone, eighty percent of that cost is um, equipment depreciation and maintenance. Um, and as Dave mentioned, he said ten billion. I would argue that you know at the three nanometer, we're talking a thirty billion startup cost for a foundry. You have to have such a large market share before you build the foundry captured in order to make that foundry sustainable, that it's really not economically viable to stand up true competitors in the state-of-the-art space with the current manufacturing paradigm. That's the fundamental mm -hmm. problem that we have. And, you know, chips, the CHIPS Act really needs to understand, the people in the advisory board and the uh, Commerce Department need to understand that, it, you know, it's not going to get a good return on investment if we're just doing like-for-like. And that's where we talk about at Draper, a kind of domestic differentiation. And I think that the, the thing that we are uh, trying to educate the various policymakers on is that the, the way forward is probably to not at the end item manufacturer like the Intel TSMC or Samsung type thing, but at the industrial tooling and design phase to try to change the manufacturing paradigm to allow a lower cost of entry and a higher speed of technology development. So right now, TSMC, to build a new plant in, in Arizona, you know, it's going to take them three years just to get the first product uh, off of the thing. And, and, you know, that's fine from a commercial perspective because they have their roadmap, they know what they're doing. But if we want to um, overtake foreign uh, advan you know, advances in technology, we have to iterate faster than them. 
And so we're going to have to do it at a, with a different paradigm, with new industrial tooling in order to realize what we call low volume, high mix, which means we can make we can use the same or similar tool sets to develop legacy components for you know older weapon systems and and use those tools to realize the highest technology um, uh, implementations as well. Yeah, and what we call the way Jeremy did a really good job describing that we call that dis- being disruptive, mm-hmm. right? You have to disrupt that early phase and think differently and operate differently to expect a different outcome. You know, using the same materials, the same tooling, the same design to beat a competitor isn't the answer here. That already has a pretty substantial lead on you. Yes. So the disruption has to has to begin at the early part of this development process. So, David, you know, from looking at the the, the evolution of the chip, um, you know, obviously there, there's this concept of Moore's law, and it's you know getting smaller, an order of magnitude smaller. Uh, where is the evolution of the chip taking us, uh, and what are some of the th- I, what are some of the advances that are you know both most exciting to you, or maybe developments that are maybe keeping you awake at night, thinking like here's here's where chip technology is going. Here's where we need to be kind of, here's the point in the future we need to be meeting it at. Yeah, so uh, I would say you can think of it in two, sort of two two paths. One path is uh, heterogeneous integration. In other words, there's a lot of products that uh, combine a lot of functions into a microelectronic module and those functions don't all need to be built at the state of the art. Uh, memory, depending on what the product is, you, you might be able to do just fine with memory that's built from a different, a different semiconductor node. So there's a great deal of attention going into heterogeneous integration, and that's really coupled with the idea of advanced packaging. How do you assemble these heterogeneous pieces of silicon into a very efficient, very high-performance combination uh, in the package. So that's one direction uh, that's that's very exciting. It's getting a lot of attention, and it's one where we are pl- playing some catch-up here in terms of, uh, or we need to play catch-up in order to be competitive. And the other is at the silicon uh, or semiconductor level. You know, Moore's Law has been, uh, you know, talked about for, for many, many years. It seems like there's still some life in, uh, in Moore's Law with three-dimensional processing and some of the other innovations that that uh, we need to pay attention to. Certainly, and, and the government and in government, basically DARPA, and industry is very focused on the next what. There's carbon nanosheets, uh, what we call gate all around structures. So it's really the, um, as, <clears throat> as our computational physics become more advanced because of the new computers, we can develop more advanced structures with which to manufacture. And then we develop new tooling with which to manufacture those structures. Um, and what we're saying is we need to just flip that a little bit and go to the how uh, and, and focus a little bit first on the tooling to make the tooling economically viable um, from a high-mix, low-volume application so that we can swap tooling out and achieve technology more quickly. Now, part of that paradigm might be uh, simply having a branch, and simply is obviously uh, a misnomer, but having a branch in the, uh, in the equipment uh, business model, which allows for a smaller scale 
copy of the same thing that's being built for the big commercial companies. If you're putting a 300 millimeter, a large uh, piece of equipment uh, in the market in order to support the high volume business, uh, might there not be a market for a small, a scaled down version of that, that would be, it would benefit from the R&D that's done for the commercial unit and, um, and be much, much more affordable. Okay. Well, right. So the, the, the industrial tooling, you know, kind of make these um, pilot tools themselves, but they usually don't make them commercially available because of the economics of development. And I think that, you know, where, where we would steer kind of the policymakers is kind of to directly investing into the tooling itself so that we can gain access to those early pilot tools in order to, con to construct a, a new manufacturing processes. Yeah. We talked about partnerships, industry, government. You know, obviously, there's the nonprofit world uh, and associations like the AOC. Uh, what role do you see associations like the AOC, uh, like the AOC playing in terms of uh, encouraging these partnerships, but especially in the STEM world, uh, in interacting with colleges and universities and engineering programs? What can we do to kind of help this along uh, from a, a private nonprofit perspective? So I'll say Association of Old Crows has been around for how long? Uh, about uh, 60 years. Yeah. And so you have an opportunity to educate. I mean, you have brilliant folks associated with this association uh, that are high tech, understand electronic warfare, right? Ele uh, electronic components. You have this opportunity to educate, bringing, you know, hosting these type of sessions and then sharing this um, with the younger workforce, not just with the association, bringing this to light in a way that's spoken in, I say, I joke and say it's in English and not in government speak, right? Having the English kind of conversation around this and not the government speak, I think uh, can bring a lot to light. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I'll kind of reiterate my thousand points of light. My granddaughter is uh, doing Lego robotics uh, and it's just a great thing and it's a very local grassroots kind of thing with, uh, she's, she's in a girls program after school. Uh, it's all girls learning robotics and any one of your members, anyone really listening to this podcast could think about, you know, can I reach out at that local level mm -hmm. and start to incite the young children to have an interest in field like this? Yeah, because they grew up with laptops at their fingertips. Right. I mean, my kids, as soon as they could figure, I, I actually had my son take uh, computer classes before I did, <laughs> before I had him work on his handwriting. <laughs> Truthfully, I said, you can type way faster than you can write things and you'll use that. So uh, making, you know, they, they are learning, but the knowledge and skills that you have that can transfer to those folks, I mean, robotics classes, yes, there are so many opportunities um, in those spaces to educate the, the future of our national and economic security. So we're running out of time here. So, so Jen, uh, any any closing thoughts in terms of wrapping everything up that we were discussing, or any any points that we uh, did not get to? So I'll tell you that um, one, it's really a pleasure for us to um, hopefully bring education, insight, and intellect to a problem that our company um, spends a lot of time investing in. I mean, uh, over a third of our engineers work distinctly on the microelectronics problem from a safety and security issue. And so giving us that opportunity is fantastic. And hopefully we um, gained, uh, brought some education to your listeners. 
Um, but we need to challenge ourselves, industry, executive branch, legislative, to address the questions we've been just discussing. We need to partner with part friends and allies um, to amplify our collective competitive advantages. We need to instill a sense of responsibility um, to the national and economic security problem because rapid changes in technology shapes every aspect of our lives and national interests. We must reinvest in retaining our scientific and technological edge, working alongside our partners to seize those opportunities and advance national security national security. Microelectronics is a perfect example of this. We need the United States emerging technology to boost our security and our economic competitiveness. We're honored to be able to bring this education to light in the vein that we have. Um, and we look forward to continued conversations um, over the next years. And, and and I appreciate you taking time to join me here in person, having this conversation. Uh, as always, you know, like we could always spend you know twice as much time talking about this, and and, and hopefully this will be an opportunity where we can have you back uh, and and continue this conversation, not just with our, our podcast, but through our, our other programs that we have, whether it's webinars or conferences. You know, I think our community needs to hear from your expertise. Uh, on a regular basis. So looking forward to that opportunity as well. But uh, do thank you for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And uh, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Ken. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guests, Jen Santos, Jeremy Freifeld, and David Hagerstrom for joining me here for our two-part conversation. Again, you can download part one, which was released on January 18th. And you can learn more about Draper via their website at draper.com. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.